Hey, hey, welcome back to On the Battlefield with Father Michael, Mark and Tony, and me, Father Joseph Collins, where we are sharing the Christian message of hope and endurance amidst the struggles and suffering of life. Good to be back with you, Father Michael. How's it going today? It is going well. Uh, things are good here. Last week, or the going into last week, we had some unseasonable ice and light blanket of snow. Made it almost feel like winter here in the Deep South. Almost, but not quite. And of course, now everything is thought out in a much more geographically appropriate 55-ish outside. And uh, we got uh, lots of good stuff going on. Uh, of course, I do want to tell our people, uh, you can still find us on our main on our main hosting platform, Anchor FM, and on social media, Facebook, uh, on the Battlefield Podcast. And of course, Anchor shares out to the usual uh, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, and so forth and the On the Battlefield shorts on YouTube and Rumble. We are still in the process of transitioning over to Ancient Faith Radio. We're very much looking forward to that. Um, those we are, uh, that is still underway. We'll let you know when to expect it and when you can find us there, but that should be coming to fruition in the very, very near future. Uh, other than that, we are doing great here, and we've got a great topic today. Uh, before we jump into it, did you have anything else to put out to our folks, Father? Well, I was. I'm just happy to hear that things there. And what did you call it? Nash Vegas, are more geographically appropriate as far as the weather is concerned. <laughs> yeah, Na Nash Vegas and Wyoming. Now, is that yours? Did Did you coin that, or did you hear oh, it somewhere? Oh God, no, 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 no. People, people, people have been using that here for a while. Locals hate it. Locals hate it. Um, it one of the things that's happened to Nashville being the, the music capital of you know music country music capital of the world and it has become a party destination so we're actually leading the nation in uh bachelorette parties like it is the bachelorette destination capital of of the nation um it, yeah so that whole uh adult party scene has exploded here much to the chagrin uh, of everyone who remembers when it was just kind of a down home country town not that long ago so the term nash vegas has been coined for quite a while and the locals do not like it interestingly enough and before we get in where that leads in on the positive note is it's actually a major hub for addiction recovery so uh you've got some you've got several national class like big national class recovery centers here, places like Cumberland Heights that uh, big names like even Johnny Cash has spent time at back during while he was still alive. Um, and you can find recovery meetings of any stripe across the city most hours of day or night. So um, kind of going with that atmosphere and going with the hard party musicians has also uh, come, has also produced a very vibrant recovery scene. So it does have a silver lining. You know, there, there is actually some good there and, and people come here from all over the country to get clean and sober and get healthy. So that's one of the good things that's happening. Let's focus on that. But yeah, Nash Vegas. Bachelorette parties. So many questions, but none will be answered today. Um, so today we no. are going to talk about prayer as an ontological reality. This came up for me during, uh, it was a seven week 
teaching class that we did out here in Cheyenne. And it was, it was seven weeks because there was an intro, but it was six weeks of really high level uh, topics that are ultimately very important to the Orthodox Christian. And obviously, prayer is one of those things. And I've, I found myself during preparation for that class coming to the understanding that prayer isn't just something that we do, it is something that we are, if it's being done correctly. And we, we wanted to talk about that today. Um, and why did I come to that conclusion, you may ask? And because uh, there are several reasons that prayer, when it's being done in, in an appropriate way, is repentant and it's communal. It's bringing me into greater communion with not only my fellow man, but ultimately God. And it offers me an opportunity to commune with him, to worship him, and to supplicate him. And also, in that very moment, just by the nature of communing with God, I'm also being brought toward repentance, hopefully. And I don't see a way that repentance isn't just naturally a part of that. Because if I am worshiping and communing with God in prayer, I'm reorienting myself toward him, which is, by my understanding, repentance. I, sorry, it took me a second to get the mute button off. Uh, yeah, no. So I would agree with you on the repentant angle. I think what really makes it so essential to talk about in terms of uh, an ontological state has much more to do with what scripture asks us to do with it. Um, so we want to break out. I just want to go ahead and break out that big word for our listeners, because uh, kind of like uh, doctors and other professionals, you know, in, in theological circles, we have our own specialized terminology and shorthand and everything else. And for something to, when you say ontological, what that means is, uh, in other words, that means as a state of being. So like not as an activity, but as something that you are. So it's the difference between saying that you're doing something versus you are being something. Ontology is concerned with what you are being. So when orthodoxy posits prayer as an ontological reality, what it's talking about is being prayer versus doing prayer. And that makes a lot more sense when you look at the way scripture asks us to treat prayer. So, you know, for Christ to say, uh, pray at all, pray without ceasing. And for St. Uh, Paul to echo in his epistles, the, the verbatim, the, the exact same command to pray continually and to pray without ceasing. Well, one may ask, right? Well, how do you do that? Because you can't continually be talking to God and asking for stuff. Um, it's just not possible. And you can't continually be reciting prayers because you've got to do other things. Um, and even if you could spend all of your waking hours do that, you'd still have your sleeping hours. And so very early on, very early on, the the uh, the church and and even you know and even David in the Psalms says, "I beheld the Lord always before my eyes." Well, I mean, surely he also had like. You know, he also had a, a myriad of other things before his eyes, you know, even if it was just simply the food set before him at the dinner table, you know, but he always held, beheld the Lord before his eyes. And this informs the way that the church has looked at it, that has continuously looked at it as how do we maintain ourselves in that state to where we're in continual 
communion with God, where we're continually beholding him and we're continually have our attention directed towards him uh, in such a way that our being is in supplication and communion with him. And so the proposition was that that indeed can be a continual and unending state. And so interestingly, the early church, when they would embark on the path of really codifying how to do that, um, they would reach for the Song of Solomon. And in the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs, there is a verse, I sleep, but my heart is awake. And, and then, of course, in the Psalms, there is that other verse that says, deep cries unto deep. So there was an idea that the depths, the depths of, the heart, of the heart could cry out to the Father. Indeed, as St. Paul would say in his epistles, the Spirit intercedes on our behalf using groanings that we cannot utter, so much so that our heart continues to cry out, and even, cry out to him even when we are asleep because we are united in love. My heart, um, uh, my heart, my heart is awake even though I am asleep. So again, and, and you really do find that. We find that in every other even psychological uh, issue. You know, if you are troubled by something, if you are obsessed with something, if you are madly in love, it works its way into your sleep. Like it'll work its way into your dreams. It'll disrupt your sleep. It'll keep you up at all hours of the night. Or maybe you'll sleep like a baby. Maybe you'll sleep excellently. But even then, right, your heart is awake to whatever is foremost in your mind and ever held before you, though your body is asleep. And what the faith of Jesus Christ holds out is the proposition that that thing should be the Lord. That, so we even see from our experience, even our secular experience, that the heart can be awake while the body is asleep because of the examples I just said. Well, that same faculty ought to be the performing of prayer as that state of being in that same way. Um, so that, that gives us an idea of where we're starting there, in my opinion. And I was remiss, uh, and you addressed this uh, already, but I was remiss in when, what I was talking about is, um, like you said, uh, ontology is the study or the science of being. And apart from that communion, or in, in combination with the communion and the repentance, in the understanding of prayer as ontology is, is that prayer brings man into his more into a perfect state of being man is not truly man without communion with god and i mean i think we need to say that explicitly so prayer actually brings us into a state of actual being because it brings us into a priestly state of intercession and communion with the most high god yahweh so it, it's not, it's it, like you said, it's not just doing. Prayer is actually something that brings man into a complete state of being. And without prayer, we are not what we are to be. You're 100% correct. Um, to be human is to be the image and likeness of God. Everything that moves us off that trajectory causes us to live as less than human. That's that's the real tragedy of sin, is that we, we image something less than human. Um, and you're going to image, we've talked about this on this podcast before, you're going to image something, right? Like you don't, 
you're not really just sort of a uh, blank, authentic representation. You know, you're, you'll image the culture around you. You'll image the music you're listening to. You'll image the demons through sin. You'll image the wild beast through untamed desires. Um, or you can be a human being and image God himself. Uh, the, the imaging faculty in man is so strong that you will do it. Uh, and and the, the way by which that warfare takes place is primarily the logismi, the thoughts. That, you know, the, the, and thoughts are more than just discursive verbal things. It's, it's all the impulses, all the thoughts, all the yanking of this way and that. And the great freedom of the sons of God, the great freedom of Jesus Christ allows us to winnow through that, discern through that, uh, and to only allow those things in, or only give a foothold to those things, those thoughts in, which are human, which are divine, which are causing us to image uh, Christ more fully. And the more we discern, the more, the more we'll be able to see when the devil is deceptive. So, I mean, we may have a thought that looks at first glance to be generous and charitable and so forth. But if we're, if we've practiced discernment and we have the discernment of the Holy Spirit, we'll see, maybe it's about our own self-aggrandizement. Maybe it's about our pride. Maybe it's about our own ego. Um, And we begin to be a little bit as innocent as doves in our soul, but as wise as serpents in uh, in keeping an eye open for those snares. And the reason I bring that up is because when we read Orthodox treatises on prayer, they spend an inordinate amount of time talking about thoughts. Like that's the first thing that they talk about is thoughts and logis me. Uh, even uh, St. Ignatius Branchaninov's book on the Jesus prayer, uh, on, in the chapter there about um, the power to expel demons, is almost exclusively focused on the uprooting of demonic influences thought and thoughts from the soul of the one performing the prayer, one's own soul. Not like, hey, you're going to say this prayer so many times, and now you're going to walk around, and you're going to be this Christian ghostbuster knocking demons out of people left and right. It's No, here's where the demons are first and foremost going to be rooted out of your own soul and heart and mind. And when you've got that down, maybe we can talk about other people. And that's very much his attitude. But the first place it starts is when we're talking about prayer is the thoughts. And because if we do not, as the scriptures say, take every thought captive to Christ, we speak, as the prophets would say, with lying lips and a forked tongue. Because we have, uh, we're, we're, we're unrestrained in our lusts, but at the same time, we're invoking the name of Christ we should at least restrain those passions with repentance. But dealing with those thoughts, that's the first step on prayer. That's interesting. I was um, talking to some people the other day and recalling conversations I've had with people in the past about, you know, all, all the things they listen to on the radio, watch on TV, things they find on social media and on web, like video streaming sites and, all the conspiracy theories that people love to to posit and spout. And then based on those things, they have this whole narrative of whatever built into their mind. And they they think that they have found some sort of spiritual reality that they they have 
uh, or or at least spiritual insight to to things to come that gives them a leg up on the rest of the world and then i i took th- those ideas of those people that i that i deal with and and uh, opposed them to some of the monks that i've met who have no access to the internet have no access to any of the modern things who just spend their time in prayer and you you find that the monk in prayer, or even the layperson who prays without TV, without radio, without that stuff, they tend to have an actually better grasp of reality than the, all the people who are plugged in all day long, which is counterintuitive to modern man because science and all this information should give you everything that we're looking for, when, as a matter of fact, it does not. You know, it, it, these are just like these are logies me that we're taking in actively. I mean, the devils don't even have to insert the ideas anymore. They they just have to they just have to tag along with with the ideas that you're funneling into your mind and that you're trying to force through the lens of of the book of the Revelation of John. And it, it's gotten a little bit crazy. And it's because most of us don't trust God as much as we should, and we certainly do not pray as much as we should. And when we do pray. Is it really prayer? Would be my question. Oh, I mean, I'd be, I, I'd be, I'd be a saint already if I had my kombuskini in my hand as often as I have my phone. I mean, I, I, I made a concerted effort to really at least say some prayer when I open my eyes in my morning before reaching for my phone. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, you, you can have Facebook continually before you. I see. It's, it's it so. So what's interesting, right? So what's interesting in Orthodox prayer is because it has to do so much more, but in the means by which we are standing before God and the disposition by which we are standing before God at all times. So what thoughts, what activities, what else do you allow in that accords with that? That's the big question. Like if you could do it, what would accord with that? Well, I mean, you know, you can't, can you do that in gossip? Well, no. Okay. So we got to cut out the gossip. Can you do that and visit an adult website? Well, no, you got to do one or the other. All right. So let's, so we got to cut that out. Can you do that and get drunk in your car? Nope. Okay. So we got to cut that out too. I mean, there's, you know, but there's also, there's also less obvious things. Can you do that and make a snarky comment to your wife? Can you do that? And, uh, and, kind of be short tempered and snappy with your kids. Like, can you, can you really bark at them so they hurry up and get ready faster because they're interrupting your prayer and have your prayer be sincere? Well, no, you can't. So then suddenly it's like, well, we've got to actually create the temple, the ambiance to where uh, we're really actually praying. Um, and, and this is, so That I want to set that over here on one corner and over there, then there's the words that we use. And the reason why the Jesus prayer is so very central in Orthodox prayer is because it needs to be continual. Um, We can pray a brief, short prayer, you know, and breathe it, which is the way we're supposed to do. And we're supposed to breathe it in and out and also perform every other activity that can become that can become automatic. But it's not discursive. It's not me running through the anxiety in my anxious list. But it's preeminently this prayer of faith. I'm confessing who you are, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, who I am, 
me a sinner. And I'm asking what? Have mercy. Help. That's it. You know what the need is, but then that's what makes it the prayer of faith. We're invoking the name of Jesus. We're bringing Jesus into every circumstance. We're taking all of our thoughts captive in order to sincerely invoke the name of Christ. And we're also not micromanaging what he needs to do and how. We're really trusting him to do his job. He's just saying, just help. Well, how does he know how to help? Because he's God. Are you sure? Yes. <laughs> right? Like, like it, uh, he doesn't need me to tell him. He invites us to bring before him the issues. So really, whatever the issue is, whether it's, you know, it's medical, whether it's financial, whether it's uh, marital, whatever, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy. Well, really, what else do you need to say if you trust him to do his job? Uh, so what, what I want to bring, so what is the ambiance in which we can say that? Well, in recovery circles, there's this thing called emotional sobriety. It's not, so the idea is your physical sobriety is really just there to aid the more, much more valuable emotional sobriety where you have serenity, peace where you're not perturbed, you're not restless, irritable, and discontent. You're actually able to enjoy existence. Um, so we're looking at sin. So sin disrupts that spiritual sobriety because it's like, oh, I can't really pray if I'm doing all these things. I can't stay in communion with God if I'm doing these things and I don't repent them, I don't make amends. So that state of being able to approach God, of being in sort of a spiritually sober state, nipsis, as the fathers would call it, that's a really valuable thing. And by the way, it's mentioned in scripture. Uh, the apostle Peter says, nipsite, grigorite, be you sober and watchful, all of you. So, and then when we come before him, trust him to do his job. Now, what you're saying is very interesting to me because I I think that we would have to say that the, the one yeah, of the what the, I say is very often is often very interesting. Yes, not always correct, but interesting. I'm very humble too. <laughs> Fraught that, with humility. Fraught, yeah. the 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 only thing that exceeds my humility is my ability to see my humility as. Or to see my pride as humility, right? Whatever. Absolutely. I had a backward. Yeah. I, I'm a backward human being. Anyway, uh, prayer, uh, the Jesus prayer in particular, is something that is designed to reintegrate the human person. Because since our youths, uh, our, we, we kind of become disintegrated. We, our, our mind goes one direction and our heart is in a different place. I, I think that we, we as modern people just see ourselves as integrated human beings and we're genuinely not spiritually, nor are we in the eyes of the church. And one of the major aspects of the Jesus prayer is to reintegrate and bring the heart and the mind the, back into a place of union so that, so that the human being can be one in prayer. Um, and, and that's not easy. You know, you, you look at, you know, if, if I were to look at you and say that I can pray while I'm working, I'd, I would be outside of the liturgy when I'm at my desk doing administrative tasks. Uh, if I were to tell you at that, at all of those times that I am in prayer, I'd be lying to you. So 
don't don't if you're listening to this don't don't understand that father michael and i are saying that that these things just come automatically if you're saying the jesus prayer you're in you're in a good place this this is a this is a thing that takes years of of hard laborious and focused work when you find that you're not praying you have to bring yourself into a state of prayer until your entire being becomes prayer this is what the monks do their entire life, which is why they have periods of work and periods of rest, periods of corporate prayer, that throughout the day, they train themselves day after day after day after day to learn to pray in all situations. And we are called to do the same thing. And if you find that you're in the car not praying, you bring yourself into a state of prayer. But it's this this mindfulness, this this watchfulness, like you just said, the nipsis that, that we've talked about before, that allows us to, to bring ourselves into this place of reintegration into the presence of the Holy Trinity. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I want to encourage you, the other thing that people, because you kind of touched on this, of, of having to, to struggle and work. One of the big misconceptions about prayer, I, I think, especially in our modern time, is we, we think it should come easily, um, and then people get frustrated, uh, and and that nothing could be further from the truth. So, like the monks will tell you that the writings of the fathers will tell you that when we have to force ourselves to pray, it's actually of greater value. Um, it's it's fulfilling the saying of the Lord, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. And that's Matthew's gospel. And so when you're forcing yourself to pray, you're taking the kingdom of heaven by force. But look at the examples that Jesus gives when he talks about what the kingdom of heaven is like. All of them are very laborious. So in the gospels, when Jesus says, um, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who is surveying a field and he finds a treasure in the field and then he buries the treasure goes and purchases the field just so that he can dig it up and have it for himself. So look at that. He finds something. He can't legitimately take it yet. So he hides it. That's all work. Only to then, then go and put the steps in order so that he can have it legitimately for himself and then have to dig it back up. And it's a lot of labor around something of supreme value. And then he says, then he goes on. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like someone who is dragging a fishing net behind a boat and pulling in all kinds of fish and sea creatures. And then he picks out the good fish and throws the other ones back into the, into the water. That's a lot of work. I mean, you're, you're dragging a net full of fish and then you're having to pull, you know, a hundred pounds of fish up, you know, through the water onto the board on board the boat, and then the work of sorting through and knowing the ones you don't want and tossing some things back over, it's exhausting. And Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like that. And then he says the kingdom of heaven is like, uh, he says, and he gives the other example of a merchant who finds a pearl that is supremely valuable, so he trades in order to acquire, again, more work. Somewhere else he compares it to a woman who loses some of her jewelry, and she laboriously searches till she finds it. There's all of this labor involved. And so when we have to force ourselves, you're on the right track. You should be having to remind yourself to do it. And it becomes a state of being. And then when the, what the writings tell us is that when we then arrive at that spiritual sobriety and that state of being, we simply do not want to leave it. So we try not to 
break it. We try not to leave that state once we've gotten a little bit of a taste of it or recapture it if we do through repentance. Yeah, this is an act of faith like we saw in the gospel reading of Jesus walking to Jericho and encountering the blind man. That the blind man says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the people tell him to be quiet. And he all the louder calls out to Jesus, have mercy on me. And Jesus walks up to the man and says, my son, your faith has made you well. So this man was persistent. He, he didn't back down. And it was by that faithful, persistent uh, pursuance of the Lord that the Lord granted the man his intercession, his, his supplication to be, to be able to see once again. And what did the man do upon receiving his sight? He followed after the Lord, praising God. Well, and you're, you're very quick to point out very often, and rightly so, that pistevo, to have faith, to believe, in Greek is a transitive verb. So it takes an object. It's not just faith in general. It's faith in, which means faithfulness is a better way of rendering it very often, as we've, very, as we've said a bunch. And so like when Christ looks at the blind man, he says, imagine how much differently it reads with it. Your faithfulness has made you well. You're following after, and, and faithfulness describes what he did. He followed after the Lord and kept crying out. He was faithful to that. Your faithfulness has made you well. Like that reading really does make it make a lot of sense. Because he could have, he could have quietly had faith all in private to himself. He, I don't want to bother or offend these people and I'll go be, I'll go have belief by myself. But that's not what the Lord praises. Like seriously, but but what he praises does boil down to faithfulness. That's a great example. It's absolutely a great example because it, that is what we are doing when we pray. We we are we are placing our faith in God to integrate us into a, Himself, to reintegrate our person, so that we may be imagers of His divine glory and imagers of the priesthood which He endowed to us here and now in this life. Um, I'm very I'm very quick to point out to people, I'm very insistent and probably stubbornly and stupidly so, God forgive. But during the liturgy, uh, when, when the priest turns around and he says, with one heart and mind, let us confess with love just before the, uh, just before the creed. And, and that's when people offer the kiss of peace, right? And, and what do we say? We say, uh, uh, help me out. I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Um, Christ is in our midst. Uh, he was, he is, and he ever shall be. I'm very insistent that the laity say that one to another. Not that I lead the charge. Why? Because that kiss of peace is offered amongst equals in rank. Which is why the priests, when there are priests together, we offer each other the kiss of peace. If there's no priest in the altar, do you kiss one of the altar boys on the cheek and offer him that? No, you do not, Father Michael. So, but why, why do I bring that up? And it's not discriminate. It's not just indiscriminate clergy. So if you have a priest and a deacon, you don't offer it to the deacon. Correct. And a deacon goes yeah. out to meet the, if there's two deacons, the one in they, the altar goes out to the one who's offering the petitions. On the soleil. Correct. Right. And the, and the bishop doesn't offer it to his priest. The bishops offer it to each other. It's, it's, it's you know, it, it's among the same rank. Yes. And the reason that I point that out and that I am insistent upon it is to draw them and their attention to the fact 
that they are priests and that they are and that they are all sharing in the same priesthood that their priesthood was offered to them and given to them in baptism or chrismation and uh, in baptism and chrismation forgive me and that and that they have a shared goal in their priesthood and that we are all priests serving different functions in Christ hierarchically and and that prayer is a major function of their priesthood yeah. and, and that's from scripture you know we are, they you are to be a royal uh, uh, a royal nation a holy priesthood a people set apart and that's Apart, that's re really what it means to be holy is to be set apart. And the idea, well, what does it mean to be, what does it mean to be in a royal priesthood, right? Well, what that means is, what that, what does a priest do? A priest images and offers. So the the function of a priesthood is to offer. Well, what are we offering? Well, it's in two directions. Uh, you're offering God's blessings to people prophetically, and you're offering you're offering creation's necessities to God. And and the whole body of Christ, according to Scripture, is called to be that. In in Exodus, the, uh, the, the nation of Israel is called a royal priesthood. And that doesn't undo the fact that the Levitical priesthood exists for that specific function. And then when the epistles echo that statement about the church, that we, we too are a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people set apart. Well, again, what is that? So it's not just the priest as it's not just the papa, the priest as the uh, the professional Christian and the lady as the taggers along. It's like, no, in one form or another, you are you are offering you are offering you are offering your family's needs to God. You are offering God's blessings to your family. You are offering your coworkers' needs to God and your and, and God's blessings to your coworker, which is why it's such a scandal when what we offer back when we're meant to be the the uh, the body of Christ and meant to be the priests of Christ offering blessings to those around us when we offer instead scorn and gossip and and, and bitterness, um, or we offer over to Christ. You know, we're taking these people that he made in his image and likeness and this creation that he loves so much that he comes down to rehead it and make all things new. Behold, it's Christ who says, behold, I'm making all things new. Uh, you know, and it's, and in Paul's epistle calls Christ's self, salvific work, not just, Oh, we're, we're worried about getting people into heaven. It's no, he says, Paul's epistles call it the, uh, the reheading of all things in Christ. So when we denigrate these things that he calls good and important and worth his salvific action for, what are we offering back to him except scorn for what he deems important? I mean, so it's not something we should take lightly. Um, I think that you just said something really important. And, I often um, do. And... Um, it's because you're recalling something that I said to you once. Uh, it's just imaging. <laughs> no, it's that the idea of offertory gifts also imaging the Lord in an ontological way. That that when we pray, we are we are offering what we are. We you know like when when I pray and I say, Lord, have mercy. There, there is an offertory act 
uh, on behalf of my very being, on the behalf of other beings. I'm sacrificing what I have, which is very little, but all that I have in, in, in this intercessory way on behalf of my fellow man. And this image is the Lord in his kenosis. In this, in this offering of, of all that he was on our behalf, and we, in, when, in return, when we pray, are offering our brokenness. We are offering the, the image of, of the Son of God that has been em, emblazoned on our hearts by the Holy Spirit through those utterings, that he is drawing us toward that sort of offertory humility to image the Christ, because we are being brought into the image and likeness of, of Christ to the glory of God the Father. And, and prayer is one of those things that is refashioning and bearing forth that actual image, that ontological image through the offering of what I am to him. And that, that really should highlight the communal nature of prayer because you, you, you rightly called it sacrifice. Remember, within the scriptures, sacrifice is not about privation. It's about communion. So, for example, when you look at the sacrifices in Leviticus, um, there is there is uh, quite detailed and ample instruction on how to portion out the animal or the cakes or whatever is being offered. Who is to eat what part? What part goes for the burnt offering? What part is for the priest? What part are for the people to eat? Um, when in Exodus, when Moses and the 70 elders go up onto the mountain and they see God, it says that they ate and drank before the Lord, right? So they're eating. Um, in, in the revelation of John, uh, it says, behold, I stand at the door and knock to, uh, to the one who opens my father and I will come in and dine with him. So, but you know, what's not given any, any description is how the animals are to be killed. Like, so that tells you it's the sacrifice within, within the context of Yahweh's worship and, and, and Yahweh's church, the, the, the important thing in a sacrifice is not the killing. It's not the dying. It's not the privation. It's the sharing of the, it's the sharing of communion. This brings us into a meal, into communion with one another, into the sharing of an offering. So the priests are going to share this portion of the animal and the people are going to share this. This goes right to Yahweh as the burnt offering. That part is explicit, like really spelled out. So, what that tells you is the nature of sacrifice is to establish communion. Why? So that you become like the one you're in communion with. So that you image God by being in communion with him. So when Christ says, take, eat, this is my body, take and drink, this is my blood, it's so that we will image him, so that we will be in communion with him and take that communion out. Um, so when we're in prayer... It's not just about, oh, I'm giving up five minutes of my time. I'm giving up an hour of my time. I'm sacrificing. No, no, no. If you're sacrificing, then I'm in communion with him. And if I'm in communion with him and you're his body and you're his image, I'm also in communion with you. We are in communion. And that's why St. Porfirio says that in prayer, what appears to be distance doesn't exist. That a, a, a holy priest praying in North America and a holy Christian praying in Africa are in the same space because where they are is Christ. 
and the rest of it, the rest of it is unreal in the face of the hyper reality of Christ. Prayer creates and establishes that communion. Yeah. There's always a reciprocity present in the sacrifice. Like in the liturgy, when we say son, your own of your own, that that offering, that that offering, like um, Archimandrite uh, Zacharias says, is is that when we offer that to God, He receives it, but then gives back all that He is in His fullness to us in His body and blood. So whatever sacrifice we offer to him or on behalf of another always receives him in return which is the fuller gift and it's not it's not cadillacs it's not helicopters and stuff i don't you can send your mandili into the tbn network all you want but <laughs> the, the gifts that god gives back aren't always physical gifts but it, but it's his presence it, it's him he gives himself back reciprocally to us when when we pray. Yeah, and I, I I'm and that's another reason to to keep sort of the prayer of faith in the Jesus prayer because otherwise we can lapse too much into the anxious list of here's all the stuff I want if you'll just please and please please and do this and just hear it, me just yeah, just it, just Lord just just do this just for me just please. Father God, please, Father, please, please. I mean, and it's, but that's, but again, that's not communion. That's just, I'm just making a verbal dump outwards. Whereas opposed to when we just, when we have a prayer of faith, Lord, have mercy. Our heart may be continual on that thing, but by restraining ourselves into just putting it before him, Lord, have mercy on us. We're also restraining our own anxiety and saying in the face of his faithfulness, we're going to leave this here. But as often as the anxiety kicks up, I'm going to place it before him again. But that's it. I'm going to remove myself otherwise. Okay. So we just threw out what I think are a lot of really big ideas. Um, maybe not for everyone, but certainly for some. And I think it would be worthwhile to, to try to recap this and put it, put it into a pair of shoes so people can actually do something with prayer as ontology. Yeah. So, I mean, and of course, so let's, we're going to run back through just real quick. The big ideas, the, the key, uh, the key concepts. So ontology itself is the study of being. It is the, uh, the look at being in and of itself. So it's, it's, um, being versus doing. So like, instead of, so if when we talk about prayer as ontology, we're talking about being prayer, about prayer as the methodology by which we image the life of the father we image the life of the Most Holy Trinity out to the world um, as, as opposed to just an activity we're doing towards God. And you rightly brought up that we are all that while you and I share in the ministerial priesthood of Jesus Christ, uh, Jesus Christ, the scripture says that all believers share in the royal priesthood. And what that means is we are offering, we're continually offering. We are continually offering the. Uh, we are continually offering the uh, creation and our reaction to creation and our interaction to creation up to God, and we are continually offering God's image out to the world and others around us. Ideally speaking, and that's why it becomes such a travesty when we do the when those things become marred over and done. Uh, poorly or not at all, because we realize that something is being imaged to us 
other than what should be. So something is coming before us and, and it's, it's scandalous to us. You know, it's interesting. A lot of the human behavior that we call scandalous would not be scandalous if it were animals doing it in the wild, right? We wouldn't call it, there, there's nothing scandalous about, like I, I remember I worked at a pet store during college. Uh, it was one of the many jobs I had worked at a pet store. And uh, the hamsters, you have to, like when hamsters have a litter, you have to separate the, uh, you have to separate the young very quickly because the mother will eat some of the babies. Um, like, and you will watch them. The, the hamster cannibalism is a real thing. And it, it may be brutal, it may be violent, but it's not scandalous and sinful, right? Why? Well, because that's a hamster. Morality doesn't enter in. It, it doesn't become a question of ethics and right and wrong. It's, it's, a, it's a hamster. It's not imaging anything other than brutal, wild behavior. Um, whereas with human beings, the propensity for evil and scandal exists. And that is a tacit, uh, that is a tacit uh, acceptance that we ought to be imaging something better. That if to image something so low is scandalous and awful, that is also a tacit admittance that there was something high and lofty that we that we ideally should have been imaging instead. Scripture posits that is nothing less than the image and likeness of God. Uh, the Son is the express image of the Father. He who has seen the Son has seen the Father, and we are made in the image of the Son. So. There should be a direct, a direct line, a continuity of imaging there. And that, of course, so that's who, what we're imaging out to the world. And, of course, then we're offering everything back to God. And as we put forth prayer as a state of being, not just an activity, so it has more to do with the, uh, with the disposition and focus, or the disorientation, that's a great word, the orientation of our locus of attention and our lives towards God. Behold, I beheld the Lord before me at all times, said David in the Psalms. And so in every moment of our life, we're beholding him before me, and then we're offering the world back to him and him to the world. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Not telling him how he needs to, how he needs to intervene. I trust him to do so, but I am offering it to him. And the logis me, that was the other concept we brought up, the thoughts the the idea that the the competing uh, the com the battleground by which we either do or do not image God to the world takes place in the thoughts and so um, if we are going to truly image prayer truly image the life of the Trinity out to the world then the thought life the interior life has to be in line with that. Um, and whatever we're actually orienting our heart towards will shine through. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, take every thought captive to Christ. So you have the logis me, the thoughts which allow us to have integrity in our imaging. We have prayer as the, uh, as the disposition and orientation by which we live, having God ever before us. The Jesus prayer par excellence that we by which we make that it, it, in an act of faith rather than anxiety um ontology the study of being am i missing anything what, what was the other big what was the other big topic the other big concept i may be missing something yeah where your treasure is so your heart is also so is 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 the treasure of your heart 
repentance and communion through through sacrifice or is it is it in 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 the world here i think that one one of the i think you did a very good job uh, recapping on that it's it's the image it's the sacrifice and the communion offered in the sacrifice like we were just talking about a few minutes ago that that sacrifice isn't isn't the thing offered it's the communion gained through the sacrifice so it's it's the sacrifice of humanity in in the imaging of Christ's sacrifice on behalf of humanity through prayer and one of the great things that we actually take from that as humans and as orthodox Christians that we can see this very plainly is that prayer it then becomes for us genuine repentance and faith because as we've said and as you very rightly noted i like to point out that faith has an object it's a transitive verb so faith becomes us it's appropriate to us to have faith in our god to see and place in him the hope of our desires and if we're doing that that sort of faith and this kind of prayer this lived prayer rather than done prayer or hoped prayer, treating Jesus like some big Pepsi machine in the sky. But actually, prayer becomes repentance because if I'm sacrificing myself on behalf of him and my fellow human being, then I think, correct me if you think that I'm wrong, but by the very fact of doing that act, I have repented. I have reoriented my life toward God because repentance isn't always doing a 180 degree turn from something that's diametrically opposed to God. I, I've become fond of, of likening sin to these auto driving cars. If you put, if you have a smart car or if you even have a modern car that has lane assist, if you get too close to the white line or to the center line, the steering wheel will tug a little bit. It wants to correct you toward your genuine heading. And if God and perfection is our genuine heading, anything that veers one-tenth of a degree off of that heading is taking us in the wrong direction. And prayer, in that sense, brings us closer and closer to our ultimate goal in perfection because it's always reorienting us to the Creator, to the being who offers us being. Yeah, and so there's a, there's a very interesting thing that happens in Greek that uh, it, it's just it's super hard to translate, and that is that Greek has multiple tenses within tenses. It's a veritable grammatical inception, if you will, because uh, in addition to having right, like you've got your your past continuous and your aorist, so like um, that's saying you know that's like so you got the past tense which. One is past continuous, so that's like was driving. Then you've got your aorist, which is your completed past, so that's drove. I drove versus I was driving. You also have that in the present tense. So uh, you can tell someone drive, and that's that uses one present tense, whereas is immediate. It is now. It is, it is this is happening now. I just realized I just used an imperative, but you've got a present tense that is that is, this is happening right now. You've also got an ongoing continuous present where it's like, this is happening. Driving is occurring, right? Um, and it's really hard to like, it's hard for me to express that in English, right? Like, how do you say, how do you say driving 
the difference between driving and driving. Like in English, there is just overlap. <laughs> one's right? a gerund like, and the other's a verb. Yeah, it's like it's like I can't, you know, other than to tell you, one is like immediate and a one-time immediate action, and the other one is continuous. Um, so why do I bring that up? Because when Christ begins his preaching, and the first word is is a verb, it's metaniete. Well, that's continuous present tense. Be you repenting, all of you. Be all of you repenting. It is continuous. It is not the repent this one time. Just just one time. You're good. No, it's like be repenting. It has the sense of a continuous trek of time indefinitely, um, you know, for the course of biological life. So that I think that goes well with what you're saying, because it's like, yeah, in continually taking every thought captive to Christ and seeking to offer the world uh, to God and image God to the world, there is the continual, like you said very well, you know, continual redirection, the continual re, um, realigning uh, of the course. Um, you know, there is the big... You know, there. I th I think you know. There's probably everyone's got sometimes where there's big course corrections, but very often it's the little course corrections. And as the fathers will tell you, if you don't make the little course corrections, they turn into big ones. Um, and that's why, like in those places, the fathers like to use nautical metaphors because, like on the sea, like if you're if you're navigating, and and I mean this is still true today, although technology has mitigated some of this. But it's it's you know if you're if you're a degree off in the ocean, at first that's not a big deal, but over the course of, you know, thousands of miles, at the, over the course of a thousand miles, you can be way off track. You can be way off course and end up very much in the wrong place. So you make all these little course corrections, um, and that's why when that's why so that's why like Saint Paisio says. When the devil comes, he comes in small footsteps. He's not going to make big, drastic uh, course deviations because you would see that and you'd react to it. It's these little things that slowly move you off, uh, off the mark, as it were. And, and that's why the fathers are so attentive to them. That's why they're so attentive even to the little thoughts, because the big stuff starts with little thoughts. It doesn't take much. So, and on the obverse of that, I, I remember Father Eugene Penty of drawing on uh, a whiteboard once. He said, the difference between you and a saint isn't that the saints don't sin. It's the frequency between the, both the frequency and the, and the um, amplitude of, like, think of it as like a heart monitor. It's the frequency and the amplitude of their sins versus your sins. Your sins are going to look like very high peaks and very low lows that happen with a with pretty regular frequency, and their sins start to take on smaller and smaller and smaller highs and lows, less amplitude, and they happen further and further apart. Those big sins, right? So that that's the difference between the average person and a saint. But then asking you, Father Michael. For our listeners, and, and even for myself, I like to hear what you think. Um, how, do, how do we put this into boot leather? We, we, we've talked about some, some big ideas, but how do these ideas 
play out in the average life of the average human being who isn't locked in a cell on Mount Athos or somewhere in a beautiful Romanian or Russian monastery. Um, or in the, uh, in the verdant wilds of Xiaomi, as it were. Where you have, it, where you Huddled have, next to the, the deer and the antelope, yes. Uh, yeah, I was just saying, you, you've got nothing to do but go around your Combuschini all day and, run, and roam with the buffaloes. You... The buffalo tend to live a little bit further west. We we do have a fair number of antelope and mule deer in these parts, though. Ah, yes. So you you do indeed live where the deer and the antelope play. Your home, indeed, home. on the plains of of central Central America. <laughs> it's not the Central America I know and love. The the uh, the. I have actually been to Central America. Anyway, the, so in any case, uh, so as it stands, right, I think, so I think the way to do this, I think the way to do this kind of, and, and I would, I would amend Father Eugene's comment to say not only are perhaps the uh, peaks and valleys of sin, um, you know, the, the, not only is that adjusted, but also the frequency of repentance, like the accuracy of correction gets better. You know, it's, it's so, um, it, it's that they're, 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 they may even be doing more corrections than we are. They may be nipping more things in the bud more quickly. And so there, there's more frequent micro corrections that you don't even see. Um, Hicks and Gracie talks about invisible jujitsu. And of course, uh, when he says that he's not talking about like magical chi powers, but he's talking about these little micro corrections that uh, just shifts of weight and balance that like from the outside, when you're, when you're watching someone uh, play jiu-jitsu, you might not even notice, but you, that it makes all the difference in feel. So like that, that's the difference between a, you know, your, your casual practitioner and someone competing at a professional level. There's all these little micro fine tunings uh, of balance and angle and weight. And it's all, it's all invisible to the, to the onlooker. It's in, it's quote unquote the invisible jujitsu. It's happening, but it's it's happening at such a these small little micro levels. But to the professional, that makes or breaks you, right? That that will make or break a professional. And, and so Hicks and Gracie talks about that. Um, and I, I think you I think that's you see that with some of these great men and women of prayer. They're making all of those little micro things that to us we're like that that seems a bit much or nitpicky. And then when we try to do it without the requisite maturity and discernment, then we become neurotic and also off the rails, right? Then we become neurotic and um, rigid, and that doesn't get you there either. Um, so how do you put? How do you how do you uh, flesh it out? Well, I think you flesh it out in small practical ways. So Elder Emilianos of Simenopetra in his book, uh, The Church of Prayer: The Mystic Liturgy of the Heart, talks about finding that the isihia, the stillness lives in the space between the breaths. So he says, you know, when we breathe, we breathe in and we breathe out. But he's like, he says, you have to find the space between the breathing. And so he says, just like athletes hold their breath when they want to undertake, when they want to make a strenuous effort. So we breathe in, we pause. Yeah. So Father Michael, you unfortunately cut out 
little bit there. But I, I think for uh, getting it into real life, you you nailed it. It's those little incremental steps. It's those tiny actions of of remembrance throughout the day. Uh, those correctives of repentance and remembering uh, throughout the day that we are people of prayer. Uh, that's what we are. It's it, we are not only physical beings, but we are also spiritual beings. We we span the gap between the between the physical and the spiritual. That the prayer is that connective tissue. It is man at prayer that brings him to uh, into communion with God, and um, and that and that if we are mindful of that, and if we remember that, then then we are becoming prayerful people, and that it takes a lifetime to to learn how to pray, and um, you're not going to be a superstar right out of the gate, but you you should want to be the best at everything that you do. Do what you do with intention, and. And don't don't be don't be content with being the third string on your team. You put the effort into prayer that you do into anything else that you want to be good at. And what makes it yeah, absolutely. So what makes it continuous, what's great about prayer being continuous is that the opportunities to practice it are continuous. So as I kind of started to say, I, I I don't know if it's gonna get edited out, but there is a uh, there was a loose dog situation that I uh, I got called to resolve out here. My my neighbor's dog got out and animal control found him. And so I kind of, and they're not home. So I kind of had to, to help with that, which yeah, is what I fix of a dog. See, but well, it's what I would want done with my dog. However, however, but even that, right. So here we're talking about prayer and even that is an opportunity for prayer. Why? How do you, what are you imaging? At? Are you imaging? Are you imaging the communion with the Father? Are you imaging the, the, the Holy Trinity's care for his creation? Are you imaging that back to him? What, what are we doing? Even that is an opportunity for prayer. But so as Elder Emilio knows, as I started to say, as he talks about, as he talks about, you, 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 prayer quickly became connected to breathing because it's the only other thing we do continuously. So you breathe your, so as he puts it, as an athlete, when an athlete wants to make uh, an effort he make he stops his breath so in his book uh the the church of prayer the mystic liturgy of the heart elder melianos talks about when we pray we take a breath in we pause we say the prayer and then we exhale so we're getting used to finding as he puts it the isikia the stillness in the space between the breaths musician will tell you musicians will tell you that music is the space between the notes it's that same idea of there you're finding the stillness so where does that where does that come in during the day? Well, actually, that comes in pretty continuously, because you can always kind of hold your breath for a second. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that that pausing, that stopping, marks the moment out as special. It sets it apart. And of course, you know, to be holy means to be set apart. It sets it apart. It sets it aside. Even a brief moment of communion, those moments build up, and that might be a moment where you've got to step away. I got to, okay, I got to help this person. Lord Jesus Christ, I got mercy, me, sinner. And it takes just the space between the breaths, or we got to jump back on recording, or my kid needs something. And it just takes, it just, just that, that little stop, that little pause in between the breaths where we, where we can say the prayer and lift even the stillness in the moment 
over to Christ. And because we're not counting in that moment, because the breathing isn't happening, in a sense, it's almost outside of time. Time, the timing, the breathing is stopped. Here you are paused in stillness, in silence, even for a brief moment, and you're offering it to the Father. And now we're taking that into the time and the movement of action. That happens with everything. So if you're so get, you know, it kind of goes back to that great advice that mom always gave you that you never followed. Like when you really, when you're, when you're upset, pause and count to 10. Well, she wasn't totally off. Like, yeah, pause, find the Sikhia, find the stillness. But when you get used to pausing and saying the Jesus prayer and pausing and finding the Jesus prayer, finding in the Jesus prayer, that, that stillness and that silence, then guess what? Then you're not just pausing and counting to 10. You're pausing and now there's real communion with the most holy trinity and everything else that's going on. And you bring those things together. That's profound. But if you, if you, uh, devil's advocate here, if, if we've read the introduction to the Philokalia by Bishop Kalistos, where we're going to see that he was not a big fan of breathing techniques, but at the end of the day, why does the, I am going to answer my own question, but why does the monk use a breathing technique? Is it because the breathing technique is the prayer? Certainly not, but it's a means to an end. It's a means of using intentional breaths and intentional moments to draw your mindfulness, both uh, the mindfulness of, of your actual noose, of your mind, of your thinking function, and, and the solitude of your heart into one place to worship God. It's that integration, the reintegration that, that we talked about earlier. So whenever you can, take that moment throughout those moments throughout the day to to draw yourself, your entire being, into the place where you are communing with the God who is from outside of time, but chose to be with us in time through his son, Jesus Christ. Father Michael, I have an appointment I hate to have to run on you, but uh, if you have any final thoughts, please uh, please interject now. So, uh, yeah, so while, while there has been in the last couple of centuries more and more caution on the over-dependence on sort of the mechanical aids as Bishop, as Metropolitan Colossus, where we put it, I think it's very valuable for us in our day and age where there is more talk about meditation and mindfulness and visualizations just flooding the mainstream culture from new age and uh eastern pagan sources to realize that we don't have to uh we don't have to go outside of the christian realm to use these biological aids in a very real and legitimate orthodox christian way i think perhaps there may have been a period in history in a time where their value may have been overstated. Perhaps that overstatement is uh, still a danger, but I think it's a bigger danger still to have our people um, unprepared in a world where the only uh, meditative and breathing and, the, and so forth practices available to them come from Buddhism and yoga and so forth and not their own spirituality. So I think, I think it's important to know. I think it's important to be aware of. Uh, but ultimately, what makes Christian prayer... Christian prayer is the communion with the Most Holy Trinity. It's not a magic technique. It is a means by which we commune with God and then bring that, become the nexus of that communion uh, between God and the entirety of the world as his image and likeness. So my brothers and sisters, uh, be prayer. And in the course of being prayer, you'll practice prayer and 
uh, your homes, like St. John Chrysostom say, says, will become Katikon uh, Ecclesia, become a, a little church, uh, the church of the home. Yeah. So I had an Athenite monk tell me that the reason that we breathe is because it, because when we're thinking about breathing, it forces the noose to be watchful over the prayer. Because you read about prayer, you read about the human condition, it's because the noose and the heart are not working in tandem. The, the, the part of your being that is to be watchful is to be the gate around the city, the wall around the city. Is, is like a piece of Swiss cheese. And those breathing techniques are intended to force the noose to be watchful, mindful of the prayer, and it habituates the noose to be watchful. Yeah, and, and that's, yeah, and it's a both end. There's a variety of reasons why these things are helpful, but it's like St. Maximus the Confessor says, nothing created is created evil. It becomes so through misuse. So our breathing is certainly not evil, um, but let's not, misuse a good, let's not misuse a good thing. But I think our day and age... Um, it, it's a it's a good tool to have on people's radar within its proper bounds and scope. Yep. So when you think of prayer, when you think of prayer, think of being that that is what you were created to do. It incorporates repentance, incorporates faithfulness, incorporates sacrifice. It incorporates communion with God and man, and it images us and brings us into the image of the humble Son of God. Um, so with that, thank you, everyone out there listening. Thank you, Father Michael, for being here with me today. Find us on Facebook, find us on Anchor FM, and look for us in the future, not too far from now. Very near future. On Ancient Faith Radio. May the Holy Trinity bless and protect you always. Keep fighting the good fight. We'll see you next time on the battlefield.